told me to not even think about running away, that he would deal with me when he got up. And then my dad went and lay down for a nap. And that was the last thing he ever said to me. Where was your dad, Crystal? He was sleeping on the couch. The only thing I remember seeing afterward was, you know, I, I looked out of his bedroom door and I, I saw him and I heard, like, his last breath. I didn't have any sort of plan. I've never sat there and thought about killing anyone or hurting anyone. On February 24th of 2014, Crystal Howell killed her dad, Michael. An acquaintance we are calling Lansy helped her clean up the crime scene and dispose of the body in a storage bin in the shed. According to Crystal, he also extorted her by forcing her to withdraw money from Michael's bank account in exchange for his silence. After what her friends called a psychotic breakdown, on March 21st, Crystal fled back to her hometown of Augusta, Georgia, and it was there that she was apprehended by law enforcement. Griff Garrison, now retired, was the lead homicide investigator for the Sheriff's Department in Augusta and was the one that took Crystal in for her interview with North Carolina investigators. I didn't do the official interrogation of her, but one thing with our system or their system at the sheriff's office is it's a closed caption system and I can uh, I can sit there and watch what's going on live as it's being recorded. And so I was able to sit there and listen to the interview and see how, you know, how it was going. They kind of dove right in from from my perspective of, of what an interrogation, you know, I, me personally, I may take an hour or two to build up to it. Um, whereas they didn't, they didn't, they didn't beat her in the bush at all. She had that look like she knew, oh shit, this is about to happen. And it was almost an instant of clarity she had where she realized, okay, now I can just get this off my chest. You know, I, I can, I can talk now. I don't have to hide from it. And you know, she still was very eerie in the in the way she said it, but it was just like her demeanor kind of changed when she realized, okay, I don't have to run anymore. I don't have to hide anymore. I can tell my story. But Crystal has never been ready to tell her full story to anyone until now. I'm Melissa McCarty. And I'm Kelly McClear. We are Emmy-nominated investigative journalists, and we've been talking to Crystal Howell since her dad's murder in 2014. Eight years after Michael Howell's murder, at 25 years old, Crystal is telling her story. We bring you the exclusive series, Killing Dad, a first-degree mistake. Arrested on a warrant for concealment of a death, Crystal was placed in an interview room at the Richmond County Sheriff's Office in Augusta, Georgia. So I waited for probably a couple hours for the detectives to drive down to Augusta from North Carolina. And so I was waiting to hold himself by myself, um, kind of freaking out, like not knowing what to do. I'm crying a lot, kind of panicking. Um, 
my mom wasn't there yet, so at least I hadn't seen her. So I, I just wasn't sure what to do. So whenever they did pull me out to be questioned, um, I remember I hugged my mom beforehand, and I was I was shackled with handcuffs, so it wasn't really like a good hug. Um, but I whispered in her ear that I just kept saying I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean it. I didn't know what else to say. I didn't know an explanation to give. Looking for an explanation, though, was Detective Scott Robinson of the Haywood County Sheriff's Office and Special Agent Casey Drake with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. When I was questioned, they brought me into the room. My mom was with me. They, they were like, you need to come here with her. She's a juvenile. So my mom was sitting in there. And like I said, I didn't want my mom knowing what happened. So I was like, I don't, I don't want her here. Um, and you make the leap, basically. Like, I, I don't want to confess what I did with my mom sitting right there. And so I signed a paper that said I didn't want my mom present. I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't know who to call, so I just said I didn't need a lawyer. I didn't know. Um, I don't know. It just seemed like these detectives were my friends, and it seemed like they were going to help. I didn't tell them the truth at first. At first. I, I was afraid of being fully honest, um, I guess, and not being believed. And I wasn't sure really how to tell them, like, well, I shot my dad because this, this, this was happening. This was built up to it. So I told him at first, I said, well, the gun jammed and I shot him. And I told them what really happened because I didn't want to, I knew, I knew that this would be a long process. I knew that I wouldn't just say what happened and then it would be over in a day. I knew better than that. Um, and I wanted to be someone that they knew if I'm telling them something, this is what happened, and that I'm not dancing around the truth. So I just decided in that moment, it's, it's time for me to just accept what I did, um, be honest about it, and see where it goes from there. So I told them, what well, I shot my dad, we got in an argument, and I shot him. And I told them about moving his body and moving the couch, but I, I left out that I had help. Um, and they could still, I guess, kind of tell, I was about 120 pounds at the time. They were like, we know you didn't do this by yourself. And I, I just kept insisting that I did. Um, and as soon as they had my full confession, like they had me draw out, like this is where I went this way and this is where I went that way. Um, once they had that, the female investigator um, kind of began talking down to me basically um her, her exact words were you shot your dad and left him in a bin ass up in a bin and i started crying and she was like you don't need to fake your tears now like very no and it wasn't even that i was faking my tears but when it, when i confessed to what happened i wasn't crying anymore just because i was I was so focused on just getting it out and telling them what had happened that I was just trying to state the facts and I was trying to make sure I had everything right. And I don't know, it embarrassed me because I, I wanted to tell them why I did it. I wanted to tell them about the stuff I've been going through. But when she started talking to me like that, it did make me shut down and it made me scared to go any further because I guess that was the point that I realized you might have just messed up. You're, you're telling these people this stuff thinking that they're going to help you and when in reality they're the ones working against you. And I, I didn't realize until she started treating me like that that she wasn't on the same side as I was. While not admissible as evidence in court, investigators asked Crystal to take a lie detector test. They were 
we don't believe you. Like, are you willing to take a lie detector test? And whenever they started talking about a lie detector test, I, I didn't want to take that because clearly I was lying um, about what had happened. And also, I didn't want them to find out that somebody had helped me. And I knew that would be one of their questions. And then that would lead to all another thing. So I knew really that I knew what they were looking for. I knew that they wanted me to say that I did it. So I told them the truth. I told them that I had shot my dad. Crystal's interview with the investigators lasted approximately three and a half hours. Upon my arrest, I was thinking, they're going to know what to do. Um, but when I was arrested, nobody nobody told me, um, you're being arrested for murder, you're being arrested for this, you're being arrested for that thing. Literally, the arresting officer asked me, he said, do you know why you're being arrested? And I said, I didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry. Um, and even being interrogated, interrogated, they asked me, they said, do you know why you were arrested? And I just said yes, because I assumed. Um, I didn't know I wasn't arrested for murder. I was arrested for failure to report a death. Um, but I, I never knew my charge, so I, I confessed to murder and then was subsequently charged with it. When I was talking about it, it just, it was such a relief to finally, I guess, get it out. That I was kind of talking plainly about it. I don't know, like being very factual and just trying to say everything that I need to say. Um, and I'm kind of shut down emotionally because I had never talked about it before. I didn't know how to process it or I didn't know how to go about doing that. And also, I guess at the same time, you know, my most of my life, my dad had talked about murder and killing people, so to, to talk about something like that was kind of normal for me, you know, as a discussion, like, so I just, I just told them what had happened, and they had asked me a couple questions, uh, they were like leading questions, like, basically like, what, what kind of man was my dad, I think might have been one that they had asked, and I just remember trying to defend my dad the whole time. Like, I kept saying he was a good person. He was a good person. He didn't deserve this. Um, even through everything, I, I still stand by that. I don't think he deserved it. I don't think anybody deserves that to have that happen to them. Um, but I remember saying also, I, I was just trying to help him. And I think that statement was a testament to how broken I was mentally at the time because that's not something, I mean, the whole situation as a whole is not something normal to happen. News spread fast of Michael's body being found in the shed of the mountaintop house and Crystal's subsequent arrest. Brenda Ennis is Crystal's great aunt. When did you get the call uh, that Mike was dead and who called you? My son called me and he said and it, you know I've had a lot of death in my family and a lot of tragedy and he said um, I think he said you won't know can't guess who's dead now and they thought I was going to go to pieces but I'm thinking one of my kids you know and they said Michael well sad, sad to say it was a relief because it wasn't my child you know, I love, I cared about him because he was my brother's child. And 
I know my brother would be there for my grandchild. And that's why I will be there for Crystal. When you found out it was by the hands of Crystal, what first went through your mind? I needed to help her. Those were my first thoughts. And, you know, I'm not her mom. I'm not. So I knew I had a lot of restrictions, you know, but I reached out to her and let her know, if you need anything, I'm here, you know. And like she needed panties when she was in jail, when she first got in there, I got her everything she wanted. But I'm thinking, where's your mother? Where's your mother? We reached out multiple times to Crystal's mom, Christina, but she has never responded. What was the consensus or the overall tone of the Howell family finding out about Crystal? Mixed feelings, probably. Um, I was devastated, you know, that that she did that, that this had happened, you know, because her whole life's gone, you know. And different people take it differently. I look at the fact that she was 17. Her life had been jerked around tremendously. She was begging her mom to love her, and she felt like her mom didn't love her. She was a lost child. I mean, that was evident, you know. And so I immediately am going to be there. My My family and my children, they're mixed, you know, on how they feel. I'm not mixed on how I feel. I knew from the very beginning there was a lot more to the story. I didn't know what, but I knew there was something and that she needed me. Someone else would come to Crystal's aid, but would they be a wolf in sheep's clothing? While in custody, Crystal did not want her mom, Christina, in the interview room with her, nor did she request an attorney present. After her confession to investigators for killing her dad, Michael, Crystal is assigned a public defender, Bridget Aguirre. I told her from the very beginning, I told her everything. I told her about Ramsey. I told her about the abuse. I told her about all of that. So... Upon hearing everything that I was telling her, uh, she decided that our immediate legal defense would be to plead insanity. Having spent time in and out of mental facilities throughout her young life, Crystal was no stranger to mental health evaluations. But this one would decide her fate. I told the man about the hallucinations I've been having and about the way that my dad talked about people. Um, I just tried to tell him everything I could think of to kind of make him see the bigger picture of my circumstance. Um, and I just remember feeling kind of crazy. Like, I, I've been through mental evaluations before in my life, but I, I felt like I never really took them seriously. Like, I, I never really opened up in therapy and told them anything. So, to 
admit to a stranger out loud, like, these are all the things that were happening to me, it, it was different, I guess, and it was out of my comfort zone. I don't remember exactly what all my diagnoses were, but, and she told me that I would have to undergo another evaluation because the, that man had seen me to be of a diminished capacity at the time of my crime, which means basically that I couldn't decipher between right and wrong. Um, and so I would have to undergo an evaluation by the state would be the next step. I was given a second evaluation, I think it was about two years after my incarceration. So the first one was almost immediately, and the second one is two years later. Um, and this second evaluation is given on behalf of the state. So these are people who are working with the district attorney's office. Then I was taken back to the jail, um, and come uh, probably maybe a month later, the evaluation came back. And my lawyer told me that the state found that I was fine, I was competent to stand trial, that there was nothing wrong with me. Um, so basically, it, it didn't matter what the first person said, um, we just had to move forward. Dr. James Garabino received his PhD in human development in 1973 and has since become sought after as a psychological expert witness in murder cases pertaining to juveniles. He has not spoken to Crystal or treated her, but has reviewed her case file. To understand what he calls Crystal's state of crisis, he told us about the adverse childhood experience scale that should have been taken into consideration when evaluating Crystal. It's 10 questions about bad things that can happen to you when you're a kid. And one reason why it's being promoted so strongly and used across the country is each question is a simple yes or no answer. Deals with emotional abuse, psychological abuse, neglect, uh, sexual abuse, poverty, uh, parental separation, substance abuse in the home, mental health problems in the home, uh, family member going to prison. Well, the number of yes answers in zero to 10 predicts about half or more of the variation in teenage suicide, depression, substance abuse, and about 30% of the variation in uh, violence. So it's, it's a very powerful way you know, to, to map where a kid stands, because at first prosecutors would say, well, lots of kids have difficult upbringings and they didn't kill anyone. So when I can show that their adverse childhood experience scale is seven, the data shows that only one in a hundred American kids gets a score of seven. So this isn't just a bad childhood. This is worse than 99 out of 100 kids. And if the score is eight, nine, or 10, it's worse than 999 out of 1,000 kids. So that's a starting point to say, that's who we're dealing with. That's what they were dealing with. Now, I try to think about, you know, Crystal, her, her score must be very, very high. On the adverse childhood experience scale, Crystal, scored a seven out of 10. Each time you ask, answer yes to one of these ACE questions, it's like you're being, giving a kid a rock and now you put it in your backpack. And I got to carry around that rock. If you're carrying around seven, eight, nine, ten rocks, no wonder you stagger under the weight of that because it's a lot to carry around. The teen brain isn't, all of our brains, aren't fully developed into the mid twenties. Can you? go into that research and why it's so important to apply. The research has focused more and more on the fact that 
this process of getting to a mature brain is not complete in childhood and can't really be presumed till about age 25. So that means that until you're 25, as a normal teenager, you're not playing with a full deck. You don't, you have a sort of disability of being a teenager's brain. And this, this particularly affects what's called executive function, which is decision-making, weighing short-term benefits, long-term benefits, uh, making good decisions, weighing consequences. And the second area is what's called affective or emotional regulation, which is being emotionally intelligent, understanding your emotions, understanding the emotions of others. And then the other finding is that what is also slow to mature is the connection between those two areas. If you live with adversity and trauma, it tends to disrupt the process of the maturing brain. So if normal teenagers in normal environments are dealing with a, a deck that's not complete, uh, teenagers in adverse traumatic environments are dealing with a deck that is stacked in addition. And Crystal was about to receive another card that would stack the deck against her even more. While she sat in prison in North Carolina awaiting her fate, a message comes in from her accomplice we call Lanzi. At one point when I was in county jail, I don't know if he was locked up or if he knew somebody else that was locked up, but somebody, uh, the girls in my squad would go to court with the guys, so they would always bring back notes and like messages from the guys. And I remember one time somebody brought me a message and said that if I were to tell him Lanzi that he would have me stabbed in prison, Lindsay had a different story to tell investigators on March 23rd of 2014. According to the investigation summary we've obtained, he said that he had only just met Crystal two, three weeks prior to her dad's death. He also told them that he helped Crystal move some items out of the house, including a tote that weighed about 100 pounds, but he didn't know what was in it. He also noticed the couch that was down off the back of the house and thought it was from a party. We reached out to Lanzi multiple times, but have not heard back. Even Michael's longtime golfing buddy, Mike, doesn't think Crystal acted alone. I don't see how that was, uh, I don't see how that was done alone. Just an opinion. How, how, how do you mean, Mike? I just... I think there was other influences involved, other people maybe, you know, based on what I read about the aftermath and what went on for a week or so after that happened. I just think that some people maybe not have been held accountable. But only Crystal, being the one that admittedly pulled the trigger, was held accountable for her dad's death and what happened afterwards. Our public defender, Bridget Aguirre, comes back with a surprising offer. My lawyer wrote a handwritten contract, and it said something along the lines of, I, Crystal Howell, am willing to take the charge of first-degree murder. And it said, it was talking about sentencing, it said uh, the sentence of around, I think, 25 years it was. Um, and then another sentence that said I would be willing to take is of around 30 years. Um, and it, it had something about life in there. She told me that she, I needed to sign this paper so that she could go negotiate a plea deal with the district attorney. And there was just always something in my gut. I don't know. I just felt like something was wrong. And, and I, I asked her, I said, well, can I be there whenever the negotiation happens? 
I just felt like I felt like the other side didn't really understand where I was coming from. And after I said all these things that had happened to me, I, I didn't understand how they could still say things about me like that. I, I shot my dad because he was going to cut me off. And I didn't understand really why they weren't, I guess, doing more or asking more questions or something. Um, so I asked, can, can I be there when the negotiation happens? And my lawyer told me, no, that's not how it works. You're not allowed to be there. Uh, this is just a lawyer thing. And uh, so I just kind of brushed it off because I don't know the law. Um, so I said, okay. Um, and she came back with that document and uh, she said, well, the plea that they offered you is life with parole plus five to seven years, which rounds to be about 30 years. And you know, I was just kind of floored a little bit. Um, and so after a little bit of thinking, I told her, I, I don't think I want to sign that plea deal. I don't think that's something I want to do. I think maybe I should take my chance to trial. And even if I do go to prison for the rest of my life, at least I had a chance to know that they, these people knew what happened. Um, and she pulled out that document and she told me that since I had signed this paper, if I went to trial, I would be charged with perjury because I basically signed a document saying that if they offered... You had 60 seconds remaining. Crystal called us right back. I felt like I had cornered myself. Like, I, I didn't think, oh, well, maybe my lawyer tricked me. or I still was trying to have full trust in her. So I, I felt like, you know, I guess, like, whenever somebody signs a contract or something, it doesn't read the fine print. It doesn't realize they've agreed to something. That's kind of what I felt like. I, I felt like it was my own fault, and I didn't know what to do from there. So... I was like, well, if I go to trial, is that an option? Do I have the choice to do that? And she told me, you, you do have the choice to go to trial, but if you go to trial, you're going to be charged with perjury because of this document, and you're going to get life in prison. There's another juvenile who filed an affidavit stating she too was represented by attorney Bridget Aguirre for larceny and trespassing charges. She says Aguirre asked her to sign a prearranged promise to take a plea deal, and when she changed her mind over the offered deal, the attorney also threatened her with perjury. Now, we reached out to this person for comment, but they have not responded. Crystal's great-aunt Brenda has a strong opinion of the public defender assigned to the case. My opinion of Bridget Aguirre was not good from get-go. You know, I, I did not see any redeeming qualities in her as an attorney. I would ask her things, and she didn't want to tell me anything. You know, even when, even after, you know, Crystal would want me to get information from her, she sent her a letter giving me permission to get all her paperwork. Bridget when said she couldn't give it to me. It was against uh, legal ethics. Well, I didn't understand how that could be so if Crystal gave her permission and I had a power of attorney. I didn't understand that. But she finally refused to talk to me. We reached out to Bridget Aguirre for comment and she did not respond to our calls or messages. Were you surprised that Crystal made a full confession and took a plea deal? No. 
No, she never denied that she shot him, never. You know, and I think she didn't know any better. And I'm sitting there going, where's the rest of the trial? Who's going to talk for her? Who's, you know, but nobody. Crystal took the plea deal, so there would be no trial. She was sentenced to 25 years to life for the first-degree murder of her dad and an additional five to seven years for the failure to report a death. Left behind in Maggie Valley were her friends that were still reeling from the events that transpired, including Crystal's best friend, Summer. I was scared to talk to her. I was scared to leave my house. Um, I think for the longest time, I actually didn't talk to anybody because, for one, people like to run their mouth in this town. So they had already put out the fact that they thought I had something to do with it and Taylor had something to do with it and everybody else that was living there. So they put that out there and then we naturally got labeled as murderers. And even to this day, I still have people that bring it up and harass me and leave mean stuff on my doorstep and all kinds of shit. Yeah, you would be surprised what happens, like what people will go, the extent people will go to to hurt somebody. How much time passed before you finally talked to her and then what, what did you say? Oh gosh, I remember writing her letters and it might have been maybe like a couple months after um, after everything had went down just to kind of be like, hey, I'm sorry I told on you, but I mean, I don't know really what else you wanted me to do. <laughs> like you didn't give me any other options. You didn't give me any time to say anything or nothing. Not that I would have anyway, but just giving me a heads up. Hey, there's something you might not want to see in there would have been great. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Ultimately, the decision that she made wasn't the greatest one, and I would have told on her regardless because you don't get to decide to kill people. Crystal took a plea deal. Were you surprised that she took a plea deal? Not really. I know that things are not always cut and dry. There's always so many different sides to every story, and they're not necessarily wrong. It's just different accounts of things. The district attorney who could really make an impact on Crystal's sentence re-examines her case and interviews with us. But first, since Crystal's public defender wouldn't return our calls, we reached out to famed former Orange County, California deputy district attorney, who's now a practicing private attorney, Matt Murphy, to get his take on the conviction of Crystal Howell. Murphy started his career in the California juvenile court system. And throughout his tenure and promotion to the homicide unit, tried and won over 200 criminal cases. So, Matt, when it comes to charging and sentencing juveniles, which Crystal was 17 at the time, how do how does the state and prosecutors handle that? Can you just talk about how you deal with juveniles and, and how states handle them all differently? So there are there are these very significant procedural differences between. Um, juveniles and adult prosecution, except in cases of murder. And that's where we get into a little bit of a gray area. However, um, when it comes to violent crime, especially cases of murder, there are certain circumstances where um, juveniles, of course, are prosecuted as adults. And there's a bunch of different factors that come into play on that. A lot of it is the age. Uh, A 17-year-old is much more likely to be prosecuted in adult court than a 16 or 15-year-old would be. Um, And the law is a little bit different in every state. So 
Um, there are there's three ways it works. Basically, you've got a juvenile that's prosecuted as a juvenile, and there's going to be local juvenile hall that they can do time in. You've got uh, juveniles that are prosecuted as adults but sentenced to juvenile court or to, to juvenile prison. Then the the third way it, that it's done is you prosecute a juvenile in adult court as an adult receives an adult sentence in adult prison. And that's essentially what would happen with Crystal Howell. So, but during that time, not only did her attorney tell her not to say anything or speak, but we know that people weren't interviewed and there were key eyewitnesses never spoken to by law enforcement. And she never gave a defense. She never said why she did it. She just never spoke. If she would have brought up proven abuse, would that have made a difference? And even if it's, I'd say there was some physical abuse, but there was a lot of mental emotional that drove her to that. Would that have played a role in sentencing if she would have spoke up? The presentation of abuse very well could have affected the judge's sentencing um, or the thoughts on what the appropriate punishment would be. So essentially, we've got a confession in one form or another, whether she's being, whether she's holding back details or protecting other people. You know, the, the fundamental question of what happened to, to this man was answered by her. Um, she killed him. So then... The next step in the analysis for, you know, law enforcement, court, uh, for the defense lawyer and for anybody that's listening is what are the surrounding circumstances? What do we know now um, concerning that? So we've got, you know, with the idea that there's a, you know, an, another person involved. Okay, so that, that becomes, uh, once we analyze that, we take a step back and go, okay, what happens if that's true? Number one, like, can we trust her word on that at all? Or what other corroborating evidence external from her do we have that for example if there was somebody else involved like what would her criminal liability be if a friend of hers or one of these other kids came and actually helped put him in that bag and move him out to the shed and the answer is nothing she's the one that killed him there's another kid that came involved became involved afterwards that doesn't alleviate her responsibility it doesn't mitigate what what she did um it just means there's another kid that came and helped drag him to the shed you know what i mean well, it's it's her version, but her narrative is this older guy, five years older. He was the one that said, don't call police. They're not going to believe you. Right. Let's bury the body. Right. The ground was frozen. So he said, let's put him in the shed. It was his idea. He pointed out the bin in the shed. And he is in uh, the interrogation transcript saying he helped her move a bin that was over 100 pounds, but he didn't know what was inside of it. Okay. Also a kid with a long rap sheet. And would that be influence of someone else? So that's that's actually a really good question. And that's broken down. You know, my expertise is in California law, but it's essentially things like this are going to be the same in, in most states. So that's what we would call an accessory after the fact. It just doesn't really have much of an impact. So I think sentencing wise, I don't think a judge would have been swayed by that. I don't think a jury would have been swayed by that or a prosecutor. You know, um, she still did it. And some other kid came along and helped her try to get rid of the body it's different but doesn't it fall under her failure to report a death charge it would it would what it what it would mean in my view is that there's another person um who would have equal responsibility for that it seems it does seem a little bit um interesting to me that you can commit a murder and then get additional time for um unlawful disposal of the human remains so the legislature of north carolina has determined that unlawful disposal of a body um, or failure to report death is a separate crime in and of itself. That's a 
really, that's a heavy sentence um, for a juvenile. We may never know if Crystal's court-appointed defense attorney strong-armed her into signing a plea deal, but we do know she received the maximum sentence that would have been given to an adult. But, but when it comes to 30 to life for a plea deal for a juvenile, is that common? No, that's not common. Why? Because 30 to life as a juvenile is pretty much, I think, uh, the, close to the maximum sentence. And it's, it's unusual for somebody to plead to the max in general. Like there's, there's almost nothing to lose by going to trial. Now, again, I got to say, I'm not an expert on North Carolina law. Um, but, you know, also this could be, this could be, look, the remedy for that is a new trial. Okay, that's, or, or, or a trial in this case, since she pled. So that's, I think, a better course for her um, is would probably be a resentencing, not not a retrial. So this girl was 17 when she killed her dad. Um, her behavior after was horrific. Uh, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll on a stripper pole is going to turn a lot of people off. And she did that. This was such an unsophisticated killing. She puts him in a in, puts him in a tote bag and drags him out to the shed. That's the that's the brain of a 17 year old. You know, that's, you know what I mean? Like that, that speaks to everything that you guys are talking about. It speaks to the idea that she's, she's unsophisticated. I think the best way to, best way for her to do it is to come in from the perspective that I am a juvenile. I was abused. The evidence wasn't put in there. How about to get a reduced sentence? Can you also maybe use the same analogy of a wife who was verbally and emotionally abused for years and had enough and shoots her husband. And are they given the same sentence of 30 years to life? No, they're not. It's a good point. How is this different? I mean, other than yes, the parties afterwards and then her fleeing to Georgia, but would it have been different if this was Crystal shooting her husband? And that's the best argument to um, to a prosecutor that's reviewing this thing, to, to, to a conscientious DA, which you're you're going to have, um, is yeah, that's that's a very that's a good argument. At the at the end of the day, she's a 17 year old kid, and as horrific as this was, I think you're going to get somebody conscientious somewhere along along the way. But as you know, things evolve uh, in society, and we we're taking a, a second look at the juvenile justice system. You know, I would not be at all surprised to see somebody take a third look at this and think that this sentence. Um, you know, that Crystal may deserve an earlier chance at parole than she's currently currently lined up for. On the final episode of Killing Dad, Crystal takes another shot at a resentencing hearing. I just don't get why, why, why not do your job right the first time? Why not look into things deeper? Because if y'all can find this stuff out by simply just speaking to a few people, why they just I feel like they wanted to believe the worst. Crystal puts it all on the line to prove she's telling the truth. Her response to each of the four relevant questions that were asked on the exam was yes. And has a message for her estranged sister, Sierra. Facing life in prison has been hard to tell. You hate me for the things I've done, but I promise you that I hate myself even more. So lonely, feel like 
Worship all around me, have mercy.